back to Serious Epidemiology. My name is Haley Bannock from the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague Matt Fox from Boston University. Today we'll be talking about Chapter 7 on Cohort Studies. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing well. It's good to see you. It's good to be here. I am really excited to talk about this chapter because I love talking about study design. And I find it uh, interesting how many different directions you can go with, with thinking about site design. And so I'm, I'm excited for this chapter. What are your thoughts on this one, cohort studies? Well, this is where you and I clearly make a good pairing for this, because I much preferred the one, you know, where we talk about the statistical methods and the, you know, p-values p- and things like that. And this one, you know, I thought it was, it's a good chapter, but it, piqued my interest, I would say, a little bit less than some of the other chapters we've talked about. Certain chapters, this probably wouldn't be one that I would choose. So this is chapter seven on cohort studies. And and so they go through the basics of cohort study designs in this chapter. So they talk about what is a cohort? How do you assemble a cohort? You can have a cohort that that is assembled by different organizing characteristics, uh, occupation, demographics, geography, particular disease or or health status. Then the chapter talks about different uh, mechanisms for how we collect data on cohort studies, how we can measure exposure time or, or time unexposed, then talks a little bit about measuring outcomes. And, and then it, it wraps up talking about a little bit of, of bias related issues, which I know are, are both of our favorites. So immortal time bias and index event bias are, are the two biases that they talk about. But this is not a, a bias specific chapter. So I guess in the way that they've set up the textbook is there's chapters about individual study designs, and then separate chapters that talk through different types of biases and and how they relate. The first question is, Matt, after reading through this chapter, does it help clarify the concerns and issues you had with defining a cohort and defining a population? I would say no. The answer to that is probably no. But I think this chapter focuses on the thing that I think matters for most of us, which is cohorts. And I think, you know, we as epidemiologists think largely in terms of cohorts, even if the design that we're using is say a case control study, there's still an underlying cohort that we're sampling from. So I, you know, to me, it doesn't specifically clarify some of those issues from the earlier chapter that we've struggled with, but you know, as I think we said at the time, I, I worry that's a little bit of what, we were getting confused on in those earlier chapters is, is sort of a distraction in the sense that it's, it's not the most relevant thing to what we care about in terms of you know, designing good studies and getting good answers to questions, which is, you know, what is the cohort that underlies the person time experience or the disease experience of the people that I'm following and, and have I appropriately included them? Yeah. You know, I, in that episode that we recorded discussing open populations, closed populations, open cohorts, closed cohorts, all, the, all those different terminologies, I got very confused. I feel like I was getting spun around and I could not remember or figure out which way was up. And I liked that in this chapter, they sort of tie it together and they bring back some of the terminology. And I think it is actually important to our understanding of how we analyze cohort data. So an open population is one in which people are coming in. They just 
describe how a fixed cohort is where you cannot change your exposure status. So you are fixed in a particular exposure group. And that is, that's why it's called a fixed cohort and a closed cohort where you could only leave the population, but you cannot enter. So, so I think that some of that terminology is, is clarified in this chapter a little bit. Yeah. And I would, I would certainly agree with that. And I think that that is, it's helpful because, you know, again, I think in terms of thinking about cohorts, it's easy to to define those, to know what you're talking about and to and to have a very clear picture in your head of, of what's what, because we're all used to thinking about, you know, cohort studies and, and cohorts of patients that we might enroll in a study or define based on some you know, database that we have access to. So, yeah, to me, that all makes sense. One more thing about terminology before we jump into other topics in the very beginning of the chapter, they talk about the exposed and unexposed people in the in the cohort representing subcohorts. Do you think about them in that way? I, I just call them exposed and unexposed groups. They call them exposed and unexposed subcohorts. I, I know that's probably a semantic difference where we're talking about the same thing, but I don't refer to the concept of subcohorts ever. Well, a cohort is is a group of people defined by a set of of entry criteria, and so I think if if you're defining your cohort based on the exposure, then yeah, it's a it is a you know the 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 larger cohort might be the group in which we're doing our study, but there are certainly you know groups of people who can be defined as a cohort within that, and so yeah, I mean I think the terminology. It works. I do think it's, you know, again, that's a, as you say, it's a semantic issue. And I think it probably doesn't, doesn't hinder anybody from doing good epidemiology, not having a clear decision as whether we call them exposed and unexposed groups or cohorts. Yeah, no, that's fair. I just, I just, I, I just picked up on that because I, I don't usually hear the word subcohort. And I think what we do not need in epidemiology is more words for the same concepts. We have too many terms. It's too confusing as it is. So I'm always looking out for, for ways in which I can simplify things and including the word subcohort in my lexicon is not, is not one of them. So you don't think that having more terms gives us more job security because we know what those terms mean? But but do we know what those terms mean? Sometimes I, I feel like somebody's going to come and revoke my epidemiology card because I, I still get confused about things that I think are relatively basic, like what an open and closed population sure. is. Sure, sure. <laughs> yep. I would agree. Okay, so so then, you know, the chapter goes through, as I said, some basic ideas about how we define cohorts. And this is kind of what I consider bread and butter of epidemiology. And I think there's great examples that you can walk through talking about cohorts that are defined by an occupation, you know, like the British doctor study or the nurse's health study. These are, are groups of individuals that were recruited based on the fact that they are part of a particular occupational group. You know, the, the Framingham Heart Study is an example of where it's it, a cohort is assembled because individuals lived in a particular community in Framingham, Massachusetts. Um, you know, and then there's other cohorts, which I think is, is potentially more common in epidemiology is the exposure-defined cohorts. Do you think that's more common, or am I, am I overstating? Meaning people defined by exposure to a particular substance, event, whatever it is? Yeah, no, I think that is... I mean, I think we define a, a particular question of interest based on comparing some exposed and unexposed or different levels of exposure groups, and therefore we're used to thinking about these cohorts of people defined by their, their exposures. 
Yeah, and, and so this leads, I think, to what is one of the most complicated and, in my opinion, too often overlooked aspects of epidemiology, which is the challenge of properly assigning person time to the groups of individuals in the cohort. So basically, person time is, is defined as the amount of time an individual or a group of individuals spends in the cohort, time per person. And it's challenging to assign person time because individuals don't always stay neatly in little exposure groups. They cross in between exposure groups, they leave, they, you know, they reduce their intensity, etc. And so this leads to all sorts of challenges in assigning person time. So this is one of the issues that I think I should understand better as an epidemiologist, and yet I'm not very good at this topic. So so what are your thoughts on person time, Matt? I, I think we don't do a great job of training students Agreed. on how to assign person time, because it's one of those things where you know, it seems like it should be obvious. You just yeah. look to see what a person's exposure is and you count it up. But but it's actually much, much more complicated than that. And I will say that I had no no training uh, on this except for, as we've talked about previously, that figure that you get in your intro to Epi courses, oh, yeah. which you know defines people's person times and X is an event and the circle you can't is the, the lines, yeah. And and I told you that was when I almost quit epidemiology because I thought I wasn't cut out for this. But now that I look back on it, I actually think, you know, maybe we didn't actually spend nearly enough time on the complexities that come along with assigning the person time and so many different questions that we really should be asking ourselves. I think, you know, the two things that are of interest, really of interest to me is one is this issue of what do you do with induction period person time? So time accrued um, when the exposure has been completed, but we believe that the exposure cannot yet have an effect. Do you include that as exposed person time or unexposed person time, or do you exclude it completely? Uh, and then this issue of prevalent exposures. And what do you do if a person has accrued person time in an exposure group prior to you enrolling them in the study? What do you do about that? And what do you do about the, the potential pitfalls of, of having that person enrolled when you know other people who may have been exposed but had an event that prevented them from getting into the cohort study in the first place get excluded. And what does that do to the validity of your results? So I, I think we don't spend nearly enough time training people on how to apportion and assign person time. Oh, I, I agree completely. I remember as a doctoral student, I was taking an advanced epi class. I remember learning about person time having a complete understanding of the concept. But then I, I remember putting my hand up and saying, okay, but how do we actually do this? When you have a big data set with all these observations, even the issue of induction time that you mentioned, how do you possibly account for that? And I, I don't think anyone does, right? I do think there are people who are really thinking about these issues and have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how do we do things better. But I would, I would certainly agree that I think we, you know, we often just ignore it. And, you know, for the issue of like prevalent exposures, we just assume that it's, it's no big deal. And, and, you know, if you come into the study with, with your exposure already accrued, um, you know, whatever, it's fine. And we'll just, we'll just start your follow up from the time point at which we observe you. And, and, you know, it, it does seem to me there are cases where that's probably fine. But, 
there are also cases where that's going to lead to significant bias in your study results because the exposure affects your ability to get into the study in the first place. Oh, of course. And, and you know, and the one, outcome maybe. Yeah. And, and one of the best examples of that is the um, hormone therapy example, I think, and, and the cardiovascular disease as uh, the end point. So the, the, um, prevailing wisdom was that hormone therapy was protective against cardiovascular disease. And this was using predominantly prevalent user designs. And then the Women's Health Initiative came along. It was a randomized controlled trial. It assigned people, so incident users of uh, hormone therapy. And they actually found that it was not protective at all. It was somewhat harmful, so much so that they had to stop the trial early. And there was a big brouhaha in the literature. How could this be? How could observational studies say one thing and the trials say another thing? And and Miguel Hernan wrote that that great paper talking about the difference between the results is largely due to a comparison of a prevalent user design compared with um, new users of hormone therapy. So it absolutely can lead us to, to get the wrong uh, results, I think. Yeah, I thought that example also had had also to do with the timing of the event. So whether you started hormone replacement therapy, you know, at a particular uh, amount of time post menopause and things like that. But I but I, I take your point. So let me ask you this question I, that that is one that just stumps me, which is you know reading this chapter, they've seen my impression in reading this chapter is that you would only assign a person to be exposed once they had completed the exposure, not during the period at which they were completing the exposure. So if the exposure takes time to accrue, you would exclude that from the person time of the exposed group. Do you buy that? I mean, is that the way you go about it? No, no, it's not the way I go about it. And I was confused by that as well, because I don't think that's the way that it's typically done in epidemiology. I mean, for the most part, smokers are still smoking, right? They're not completed their exposure. Um, And so, you know, I think in almost any example that you think through, it's not about a completed exposure. No, so so I I take that point. But if you have a, a, a defined dose and duration of a particular, say it's smoking, and we want to study the effects of smoking five packs a day for five years compared to never smoking. Do I include the time period of a person who begins smoking five packs a day? Do I include that five years in the exposed person time? Presumably it's not unexposed person time, so I wouldn't ever include it as unexposed, but I might exclude it. What would you do in that case? So I I believe you would include it, but it, uh, it, do you think that's incorrect? Well, so what would happen for a person who is, you know, in the group, I, let's think of this as a randomized trial, but if it were a randomized trial and you assign somebody, and obviously we've never assigned somebody to smoking, but just pretend here for the moment, and they don't ever complete the five pack years, uh, sorry, five packs a day for five years. Do you still include them in your exposed group? I would say, well, in part, they've the way that the question is structured is is making this to be more of a problem. But yes, you would ha- they're not unexposed, right? And it would be incorrect to exclude them. Yep. So by virtue of eliminating those two options, then yes. But this is getting into those immortal person time issues. 
Well, it, it can, but it doesn't have to. Um, I, I would agree with you. And when we get into the observational variant, we oh, can right, end up sorry, yeah. with a with a, an immortal person time problem. But but just from like thinking about the moving from randomized trials to observational studies, you know, I think about this a lot. I think in a randomized trial, you would certainly include those people. You would include people who you and and let's get out, let's leave smoking because it's very hard to to think of a randomized trial with smoking given that we would never actually do it for ethical and, and, and logistical reasons. But let's say it's, it's a drug. And we assume that, you know, when you start taking the drug, it doesn't really have an effect until you've taken it for X amount of time. Well, we would still include that person and their person time in the exposed arm because we assigned that to them. And so one way to make the jump from randomized trials to observational studies is to say, what we're really interested in is the intervention of telling people, you know, do this or, you know, take this amount of drug or consume this amount of vegetables or, you know, engage in this particular behavior. And that matters to me because if we're actually thinking about interventions that we would do in the real world, advice that we would give to people, then if we can't actually, you know, if a lot of people um, have negative complications during the time period at which you are accruing the exposure, well, that's still part of the group that we're assigning the exposure to. And so excluding that seems to me to be giving us the wrong answer. On the other hand, if you really want to know only about the effect of that particular exposure once you've consumed X amount of drug, you know, then I suppose you can make an argument. But in the real world, that that's not a, a, a relevant parameter, is it? No, I, I agree with you. That's not the relevant parameter. And and. I guess this comes back to the importance of creating study questions that answer the the real world issue that we're facing. So what do you think the relevant study questions are in that case? In other words, when I bring this issue up, what people will, the response I will get is people will say, well, we care, we want to know what is the effect of the the medication, not the effect of the policy or, or the request for, you know, the, 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 the advice to give somebody the medication. But we don't, you know, I mean, and, and, and I, I get that, but we don't live in a world in which we can snap our fingers and somebody will magically have consumed, you know, five years worth of a, of a medication, right? We have to go through those five years. And in those five years, people may have side effects and stop taking the treatment. They may, they may die. They may have other events that make them contraindicated for that medication. And those, you know, if we ignore those, we're not really getting... A useful answer. So, what's the what's the what's the value in the question in which we only assign person time at the time point at which somebody's completed an exposure? I had a good answer for this, but then I got a bit lost with that last sentence you said. So, you know, the the you're I think you're asking two separate questions, right? The first is about does this drug work to prevent, let's say, the outcome. I'm interested in. If you take it as prescribed for five years, you know, does it work to prevent whatever you're worried about? So that's one question, which is a different question than a policy level question about prescribing the drug. I, I don't know that they're totally different. I mean, I'm, to be honest, I'm not. I'm not interested in a policy level question. I, I'm. I'm interested in a, you know, the the let's say a provider prescribing the medication, but. If we really believe there's some kind of a switch that happens 
where you take this drug every day for five years and it doesn't work until you hit that dose on five years, which obviously is absurd, but let's just pretend. What what good does it do me to only study the effects of the time period after the five years if during that five years, bad things are going to happen to some people that are going to cause them to stop taking the medication? Yeah, I mean, you... you... That's kind of an absurd example, right? As you said, that that it would flip the switch. And and so do you think that that's what the authors are arguing for in this chapter? Well, I, I mean, I think in the in, if you take it to the extreme, it feels to me like that's where you go with this. That, that if you say you're excluding all of the person time during accrual of the exposure, then you're not, to me, really studying the impact of the process by which we would, rec- you know, so let's say, for example, in that example, that five years, it's actually really, really bad. And a lot of people die. But if you manage to survive the five years, the treatment is beneficial. Well, then I have to make a decision as a person who's going to prescribe this medication or somebody who's going to take that medication. Is it worth it to me to take drug A, which, you know, I, I have stand a, a very high risk of dying while I'm waiting for it effects to kick in? Or do I take some other drug that might have less benefit if I survive the five years, but has more benefit while I'm going through the process of surviving the five years? I, I might go for the other drug. And it feels to me like we're, we're just throwing that out as part of the, the question. I think I'm having a hard time with this because it is so opposite to the way that I think about exposures i don't think at all about completed exposures that that as a concept doesn't really make sense to me so i i agree with you completely that 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 it would change your decision making based on what's happening in those five years surely you want to survive those five years and if it's killing you in those first five years then no it wouldn't make sense to take the drug at all so so the example that i often i use with my students is the effect of a surgical a surgery that can be done in utero and uh, compared to the same surgery, but done after the child is born. If the procedure, if the the procedure is repairing something that is particularly dangerous for a fetus, um, then what we might find if we only start the the follow up time at the time of surgery for you know an observational study where we compare those who got the surgery at birth compared to those who got the surgery in utero then that comparison focuses on a group of people, those who got the surgery after, after uh, being born, who had to survive in utero a period of time in order to get that surgery. Yeah, of course. So if I just compare those two, then in some ways you might say, well, I'm comparing the effects of the, the prenatal surgery to the postnatal surgery. But that ignores the fact that it takes time making the decision not to do the study, the, the, the surgery in utero means my second, my comparison group is wait until birth, then do the surgery. And therefore anyone who dies waiting for the surgery has to be included in the intervention. So in any real world scenario, leaving those fetuses out seems to me will give me an answer that doesn't pertain to anything useful for decision-making but might answer something related to, you know, just the benefits of pre versus postnatal surgery somehow. That's why I sort of, I think of it as t- 
taking time for the exposure to accrue because in the wait arm, it's wait, then do surgery. So waiting is part of the part of the exposure. Yeah. Wait. So wait. Yeah. Waiting is, is, I mean, it's not really part of the exposure, but I understand it can have an effect. I still think it's part of the exposure. The exposure is do the surgery now or wait until birth and do the surgery. And therefore you need time to lapse for the comparison intervention or comparison exposure to accrue. I guess I I don't really consider, again, I don't really consider waiting to be part of the exposure, but it is in the scenario you are describing, there is a clear mismatch between when the exposure is occurring. And I think this is where the target trial framework is particularly helpful because it's important that the time zeros for the two groups, two or more groups, I suppose, that you are interested in line up with each other. And in the example that you are describing, there is a clear mismatch between the, the time zero for the exposure uh, in the, the study that you're describing. I, I agree with you. It's, it then becomes really complicated then to try and answer that question because what would you do with anybody who, who got neither surgery? Did they go in the group that, that was, you know, in the arm that was weight and then have the surgery postnatally? That doesn't seem right. You can't assign person time prior to the surgery for those who got the surgery postnatally because then you have immortal person time. So then you need to start thinking about these sort of more complicated models like the dynamic treatment regime type models that are brilliant. And I think they're fantastic. But does anyone have you know good data to be able to actually answer these kinds of questions, I, I, I'm skeptical. In my head, there's a, a ranking of different difficulty levels of different areas of epidemiology, and prenatal epi is way up there in the methodologically difficult realm because these are issues that they think about regularly, they have to address regularly, and it kind of makes my brain turn to mush when I have to think through them. I totally agree. It's it's a it's a field that both fascinates me and terrifies me. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So let me ask you a different question about cohort studies. And this is something I again, I think I should have a better command of and I I don't. So do you agree or disagree with the following statement? At baseline, all individuals in your cohort have to be disease-free for the disease you're interested in. At baseline, meaning at the time of enrolling people into my study. I, well, so are we talking about a an, a disease that uh, is permanent? That is, once you have it, you yeah, always so have let's, it? Yeah, so let's say cardiovascular disease. So you have to be free of CVD at baseline. Yeah, then I would say you want to exclude anybody who has the, has already had the event of interest. And I I, I say that, like that's sort of, that is like what we're taught. Certainly yes, what we're that's taught what we're in, taught, yeah. And that's in, what I teach. Inter- I certainly, th- I believe that you could enroll those people and you could study the effects of an intervention uh, or some exposure on preventing an outcome or causing an outcome in a group of people who already have that outcome. And you can get the right answer to that question, which is if they already have the outcome and it's permanent, the intervention is going to do nothing, but it just is not an interesting question. And therefore, it seems to me you would exclude them for reasons of asking an interesting question, not because you 
in theory, couldn't get the right answer to a question that nobody cares about. So what about if the exposure you're interested in, let's use obesity as an example, the exposure is associated or has an effect on the outcome. You're enrolling people at midlife. Aren't you inducing a form of bias by excluding those individuals who have... What's the outcome? CVD, again. By excluding those individuals, aren't you inducing a form of bias uh, in your results, collider stratification bias? They also discuss it in the in the sense of index event bias in the, the chapter. So the answer to that, I think, is, is certainly uh, that you could be introducing bias in that case. But I don't think the solution to that problem is, therefore, to enroll people who have already had the outcome. I mean, I think that if you really wanted to answer that question you would need to either, you'd either need to start before the exposure really occurred, uh, and so then you're not dealing with a a prevalent exposure design, or you need to change your question to something, you know, along the lines of what is the effect of, you know, let's say in this case, you were talking about obesity on a particular outcome, you know, conditional on having survived to age 40 or whatever it is without the outcome. it, that may again may, may be a far less interesting question, but I do think you could design some interest. I mean, this is one of those things where I think you know the questions that we answer around nutrition and BMI and things like that always strike me as not the questions we'd really want to be answering if we could. So we answer questions around you know sort of general is uh, is high BMI or, or, or whatever we're going to define it related to some particular outcome, or you could also say very low BMI related to some particular outcome. And those are, those are sort of an interesting thing to know, but, you know, really relevant to me is given where I am in my life at this particular point, what would be the harm in going into one of those two categories, very high or very low BMI, or if I'm in one of those categories, what would be the benefit of getting myself out of one of those two categories. But that's a very specific question because it's contingent on everything that's happened to me up until that time point. And so we can't really answer questions like that very easily. It's also contingent on the ways in which that you change your BMI category, right? So if you decide to cut your diet, so you only eat 100 calories a day and you you lower your BMI that way, is very different than starting a, an exercise or strength training program where you are increasing your caloric expenditure, your energy expenditure, and you change your BMI category that way. So it's contingent on both of those two things that that could have an effect on your outcome. Yeah, no, there I think you're getting into the, the sort of the consistency assumption. But leave, you know, if you leave leave that aside, it still seems to me that the the, the questions that we're interested in are often not the questions we're answering. Yes, I think that's true of a lot of a lot of or, different... or, or I should say maybe the questions that would allow me to make good decisions in my life. Right, but there's still important information to be gained, I Agreed. think, uh, by doing the opposite. It's just less informative in terms of what decisions you take moving forward. I, I, I totally agree with that. It just gives me far less precise information to work with. I mean, if you if I mean again, if you imagine there is some harm to being in you know a very low BMI for an extended period of time that never goes away, then once I've accrued that, 
you know, and let's say, you know, and then, and then the risk just stops. Like if you survive it, you know, you're, you're, you know, there's no harm to being in that low BMI category for an, ex- an even longer period of time. Then, you know, at that point, it's no longer uh, a, a prop, you know, it doesn't matter to me whether or not I, 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 I try to change my, my BMI, but, you know, given that's, you know, that's an absurd example, we would want to know what are the steps that one could take that correspond to actual effects in the real world. And, you know, those aren't sort of, is is being in a low BMI bad or good? Yeah, I agree with that. And that raises another question that I had from the chapter, which is about real world exposures. So most often times, not most often, very often, I'll say in papers, we use point exposures as, you know, whatever we want to call it, simplified assumptions, blah, 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 about whether this is real or not. When in the real world, we know that there's very few things that have an effect after a point exposure. Maybe, you know, exposure to high dose radiation in the atomic bomb would be an example of something where a point exposure is truly the effect of interest. But for the most part, we're talking about chronic exposures over a long period of time, varying intensities, you know, and these are complicated things to measure. So how bad do you think we do at quantifying these kinds of issues in epidemiology? I think we don't spend a lot of time, you know, leaving aside your direct question for the moment. I think we don't do a good job of teaching students uh, the, about these issues. And therefore, I think it translates into the answer to your question, which is I don't think we do a, a great job of dealing with these issues. And I think, you know, this, this, that maybe this is where, you know, Epi Methods goes over the next you know, 10 years. I mean, there is certainly a, a a baseline of work that's been been done on thinking about these kinds of issues to build on. But, you know, it's 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 conceivable to me that 10 years from now, we don't think of exposures as point exposures when they're not to the to, to nearly the degree that we do, because we have we have both training and methods that allow us to deal with the complexities of people moving between person you know between exposure groups and and changing their levels of exposure the complexities of of whether you know there's some kind of a threshold effect or things like that to be clear i mean we do have approaches to dealing with that now i just think they're not all that sophisticated yet and potentially induce their own biases that we we need to spend more time sorting out and i i referenced the dynamic treatment regimes work that, that Miguel Hernan and Lauren Kane and folks have, have been doing that I, I, I do think takes these problems head on, but we're just not at the, at the, the stage at which we can um, fully incorporate those into mainstay of epi training. Yeah. I, I, two thoughts on that. Um, I think this is an area where this newer time we're in with electronic medical records, health data, big data, all the, all these forms that are the, the hot new new thing. I think this is where potentially that data can really shine, right? If you have a large, let's say Kaiser or something gigantic, 
you know, service organization that has millions of people with annual checkups at their doctor. And, you know, you can see really how someone's exposure that you're interested in is changing over time. That gives you the ability to answer some of the more nuanced questions, which I think in part, we are not as good at answering because we often don't have the data to answer those. We know something changes over time, but we didn't don't have the measures of it because it was too expensive or too logistically challenging or whatever. So we fall back on, okay, so maybe it was the same as when we collected the data at one point. I totally agree. I mean, I think many of the, the questions that we ask in epidemiology, whether impl- implicitly, or, implicitly or explicitly, sometimes it just is a, a function of, we didn't really think through the question, we just did the analysis and therefore we have to figure out what question it corresponds to, but that we ask questions that are very simplified versions of the questions that we probably want to ask if we were really thinking things through, because it's 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 the data that we have access to, and maybe we can't really answer the question. But your point, there was a, there's a, a point that I wrote down in my notes here that I wanted to ask you, which is, do you think that the era of, you know, we're talking about cohort studies, do you think the era of, you know, the sort of the big longitudinal Framingham type cohort study has come to an end because data, you know, electronic data exists in a way that it didn't before. And, you know, when Ken Rothman was on the the program, he talked about epidemiology being, you know, a luxury for societies because it, it requires time and and money and, and it also requires access to data. And that, you know, he believes that part of the reason why epidemiology has taken off so much is because we have more access to data. So my original question was going to be, is the era of the big cohort study coming to an end. But I guess I would also throw into that, do you think that methods development has taken off the way it has because we don't have to spend nearly as much time with collecting data as we used to? We still do for lots of things, but not nearly as much as probably we used to. And therefore, A, we have more time to put into methods, but also B, the data that we're collecting is probably not in the form that we would collect it if we were designing the prospective cohort study, and therefore we have new problems that we have to solve. Yeah, there's a lot of, okay, there's a lot of questions in there. But firstly, I do believe that our methods have taken off because the availability of data. So we have the data within which to, to, you know, try cool things, try to solve new problems. So yes, I, I think that that has contributed to it. I I don't think the era of big cohorts is done, per se. I think it would be really challenging, you know, thinking of me as an early career investigator to to write a grant to say I'm going to establish a new cohort study of 100,000 people. That would be a a tough sell, I think. So I I think it, it has become ever increasingly more challenging to assemble these cohorts. But with that said, we have great cohorts right now that we can rest on or utilize. So we don't need them in the same way, I don't think, that we maybe needed them in the 1950s to answer particular questions. I mean, as we'll we'll talk about in, in our episode on the Framingham study, that cohort, it was established in the 50s or I think late 40s, it's still going on today, right? And so to establish a new cohort of a community in a you know a state and follow them for 75 years, I, I think that's maybe not the best use of resources given we already have cohorts that are doing that. Yep, I I believe that's true, and I think that that you know epidemiology has changed a lot because of the era of of big data, um, and you know I think it will continue to 
to evolve and develop as as you know data now can be linked from so many different sources in ways that we just we just never could before. So I I think it's interesting times ahead. Yeah, and and I think you know big data often gets a bad rap. The variables aren't measured perfectly. It wasn't collected for that intended purpose. But you know there is a lot of advantage to using that kind of data and. What we know as traditional cohort study data is not perfect either. We're just potentially more familiar with the limitations of using it and, and the approaches to dealing with that stuff. But it's it's not a perfect data source, uh, you know, by comparison. Okay, so do you think that epidemiologists will someday become obsolete? I've asked you this question before, but I'm asking you again. Because at some point, there will be so much data out there that all is being linked together by computers in real time and the computers will be so good at you know i mean things that they can't do now right we can't computers can't figure out uh causal relationships nearly as well as we would like them to you know that's why we we put so much energy and effort into into dags because a computer can't just figure out what the causal structure is but 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 maybe in the future they will be able to and then so therefore they will be able to figure out the answers to all the questions in their own time, and they will figure out what the questions are, and we'll just be left without a job. Well, that's typical Matt Fox pessimism coming out for you, because <laughs> <laughs> no, I do not believe that computers are going to make us obsolete, because computers can't think. I mean, maybe you could imagine a world in a very far off distant future that that could occur, but, you know, being able to do analysis is a very different thing than coming up with questions, understanding the real world implications of the results, you know, translating that into policy or interventions. Those are those are things that I, I, I don't see a computer being able to do at any time, you know, in, in the foreseeable future. 50 years. Within 50, 50 years. years. No way, Matt. Yep, absolutely. No way. No way. We are this profession will be completely done by computers in 50 years. No I'm, way, I've said it here. You said it here. We'll, okay. We'll check back in on my 99th birthday. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So I, you know, I think that that sort of gives a, a broad overview of, of the chapter. Is there anything else that, that yes, jumped out I, at you? So what's I have, I have one more, one more question that I want to ask you. So they provide an example in the, in the textbook in which they say, as another example, suppose that the investigator wanted to examine the effect of being an ex-smoker for at least five years relative to being an ongoing smoker. I don't see that as a, as a question that makes sense to me because, you know, again, and I know I get criticized for, for thinking of everything in terms of randomized trials, but you can't, you can't do that as a randomized trial. You could do a variant of it, which is you could take a bunch of people who have smoked for a period of time, encourage some of them to continue and then encourage some of them to quit. And, you know, hopefully let's say, let's say your, your powers of persuasion are excellent such that you, you do that. And everybody does exactly what you ask them to. The question then is, what is the effect of uh, stopping smoking versus continuing smoking? And that risk benefit may change over five years or 20 years or whatever it is. But I could never randomize someone to say, retrospectively, have quit smoking five years ago. And so it, it makes no sense to me to think about questions in terms of events in the past. Do you follow what I'm saying? Am I am I being totally No, I, I understand. So that example also jumped out at me. 
that I, I didn't really understand what they were asking about. It was that in the section about immortal person time? It may have been. I, I didn't write down where it came from. Because I, I took that example to be a kind of absurd toy example because it doesn't, there's no parallel for that in the real world that any of us would be interested in. So, so I, Oh, I, I, I'm not sure I, I would totally agree with that last part, which is because I do think people ask the question all the time, you know, is there an effect of quitting smoking the longer you have stopped smoking? Do the, does the effect get larger or smaller? But right. so that's what I think this, this sort of corresponds to. I just think it's a, a question that doesn't logically make any sense because in order to get to having quit five years, you have to have survived those five years. Right. So it depends, I suppose, on, yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of things. It depends on how you've structured it, right? Because if you're comparing risk of lung cancer in a group of individuals that quit five years ago, the question is, who are you going to compare that to? Because it's not a, a fair comparison to compare it to a group of non-smokers because you're going to lose individuals from the the smoking former smoking arm differently than you're going to lose individuals in the unexposed arm. So this is getting into issues about selection bias, I suppose, but that's what I mean. It doesn't make sense as a real world question, depending on who you are comparing those results to. I think there's certainly, you know, an interest in understanding what are the benefits of how, you know quitting smoking the longer you have quit smoking? Right. Uh, no, and I and I and I agree with that. I mean, I I don't think it does actually logically correspond to a real question, but I think it's a question that people ask. There was this whole literature on recency that I you know it's just never never logically made sense to me because I can't operationalize it in terms of how you would do it as an intervention. I I you know. Because you can ask the question, like, five years after quitting smoking, do the benefits increase for having quit the smoking? And you may see, you know, the the risks going down for those people. But is that because the five years of not having smoked is having an effect? Or is it because over those five years, a number of other people who were smokers for a long time have, have died or developed lung cancer, whatever your outcome is? And therefore, they they drop out of the the equation, and therefore you're just left with people who were less likely to experience, you know, a, a, an outcome from the smoking anyway. And so you're just depleting the depleting the susceptibles. So it's not an effect; it's just a an association. Yeah. So this is where this is hard to design as a trial. This is the hard one to think through. I don't think you as can. I think that as a trial, you would design it as stop smoking or continue smoking, and then we want to know does the does the effect of stopping smoking get larger or smaller over time? But you can't, I don't think you can really divide people up into, you know, what happens five years later, because then you're conditioning on a future event, you would create selection bias. So I, I, I think there is a question there that you could do as a trial. It's just not this one. Right. It's just not this one. And I think it gets into issues similar to what we discussed earlier about prevalent users. I think it's sort of the opposite problem, whereas they're they're non-prevalent users, but you're comparing them to individuals who are who are quitting. So it makes it it makes it a very complicated question. It's totally complicated, and we can we can we can leave it there. But I, it does seem to me one of those things that has always jumped out at me as not not something I could wrap my brain around. So if there are people who have better answers to those kinds of recency based questions, I would I I would love to hear them. Agreed, agreed. 
So with that, I think we will wrap up for this for this episode on cohort studies. Thanks for, for chatting with me and helping explain this to me a little bit better. For those of you who are not members of the Society for Epi Research, I strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Uh, membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June in Chicago. It also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, we think you'll like that one. We really appreciate you listening and hope you join us next month for our upcoming episode.